I want to start off this morning um, by doing something quite different. Uh, every two years, the, um, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, or I should say the American segment of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, uh, that is the worldwide movement of which this church is a part, uh, we hold a huge conference every two years uh, where uh, Alliance workers come together from all over the United States and we come together for worship and for prayer and for connecting with one another and for hearing from the Lord and also for uh, doing the business of the denomination. And this year's council, as you can see, was in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, thanks to the generosity of you guys, uh, Wes and Danielle and I were all able to attend. And um, as we consider that you are just as much a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance family as we are, uh, I want to go ahead and give you a little bit of information and maybe give you a little bit of a report this morning on what happened and then kind of segue into our topic for today, which shouldn't be that hard to do, actually. Um, but I wanted to just give you guys an update. I like to do this when I come back from council and to share some of the great things that the Lord is doing. Uh, we felt very spoiled, as you can see where we were at the Opryland Resort Hotel, which is really nice. Um, and uh, we also felt very spoiled uh, during our times of worship. Because council happened to be in Nashville, Tennessee, our worship leaders were all Christian recording artists. C.C. Um, Winans, Andrew Peterson, and Aaron Schust led worship for us. Um, Aaron Schust is actually an Alliance guy from way back, and he led all of our daytime worship services in addition to one at night. And he did such a good job leading worship that I thought about going up and seeing if he wanted to take our position here as, as worship director, but I chickened out. Don't think he would have taken the job anyway. But anyway, um, as for the business sessions, um, some people get into that, some people don't, but I thought I'd tell you a few things about them. Uh, we re-elected our president, uh, John Stumbo, for one more. He's, he's term limited after this term, but he'll be with us for four more years. Uh, some of you met John back in 2016. He came here uh, during July and spoke here at this church, and we had a meeting with him. Uh, so that is one thing that happened. Uh, we have also been working for a couple of years in the Alliance on uh, making some updates to our statement of faith. Uh, not to make a lot of radical changes to it, but to express it in more up-to-date terms and to clarify some things. Uh, at council, we got through, I think, nine of the 11 segments, but uh, we got kind of bogged down and we ran out of time. And so uh, some of that process happened and some of it will be continued in 2023 in Spokane, Washington, which I'm not looking forward to as much as I was looking forward to Nashville. But anyway, if you know anything about Spokane, Maybe it's a nice place to go, I don't know. Um, an another issue that we've been working through uh, is the role of women in ministry, uh, looking for ways to remain true to our understanding of Scripture while also opening up as many opportunities as possible for women to use their gifts, including leadership gifts, in Alliance churches and ministries. And so while retaining our, our understanding that, that we believe what the Bible says about elders of the church is that the elders, including the senior pastor of the church, are men, uh, we are working on clarifying the definition of elder and its relationship to the role of staff members and institutional chaplains and, and titles like reverend and pastor and things like that. And so over the next few years, you may see a few things changing in this area, including new roles and new titles for women while Alliance Churches will continue to reserve the role of elder and senior pastor to men. If you have any questions about any of that stuff, feel free to come and talk to me and I can try to explain to you where we are at. Um, but for me, the most exciting part of hearing reports at council is not doing the business, but finding out what God is doing in our mission fields around the world. And I know that a lot of you here 
are relatively new to First Alliance Church. Maybe even in the last year or two you have come for the first time. I know a lot of you here are certainly new to the Christian Missionary Alliance. And I want you to know something. I want you to know that you are not just part of a medium-sized church full of mostly white people on Arnold Road in Lexington. Uh, you are part of a worldwide movement that extends into over 80 countries now and includes over 7 million members, only about half a million of whom are in the States. And in fact, even here in America, about half, about half of Alliance churches in this country are ethnic minority and or non-English speaking churches. And every Sunday, at least 37 languages and dialects are spoken in Alliance churches right here in the United States. Now, when it comes to missions giving, giving to God's work around the world, I think I need to let you know that they, they publish a list every year of the top 100 churches as far as the money given to Alliance missions. And out of over 2,000 churches, uh, y'all are number 51. So that's, that's um, yeah, that's really good. That's really good for a church our size. Um, and it doesn't count what we give to Katie or to Christy or to Kyle because uh, those funds don't, go, don't even go through the national office, so the denomination doesn't see them. And so this is not a contest. This is not just to, to have you, this is not for a pat on the back, although it's something we definitely rejoice in. But on behalf of the 700 plus international workers working in all these countries around the world, let me say thank you. First Alliance Church of Lexington is making a big difference in the Great Commission through your giving to overseas missions. So thank you, thank you very much. And by the way, beginning next year, there are going to be even more ways to support Alliance missions by giving funds to specific international workers in addition to giving to the overall Great Commission Fund that supports them all. I don't have time to go through all those changes this morning. It's kind of complicated. Um, but before next year, you'll be hearing more about new opportunities to give. And as with all these things, you can come up and ask me questions um, or West, too. I think he knows all of it and has no problem understanding any of it. Not really. It's pretty complicated. But anyway, um, we're, we're still working to, to, to work it through it ourselves, um, but we're happy to talk to you about any of these things. Let me share with you a couple other things relating to our worldwide uh, missionary effort. First of all, the Alliance this year is going into two new countries. Uh, I cannot give you a whole lot of detail about that because this service is being streamed on the internet. But several years ago, we hosted a couple at First Alliance. If I said their names, most of you would know them. Uh, after they were here, I actually had them speak at Power Time Camp. Uh, this couple was working in a Central Asian Republic that used to be part of the old Soviet Union. But after they were there for a few years, their identities were exposed, their identities as Christian workers, and they were expelled from that country. And so what they've been doing is a, a lot of folks from that country are, are living in another country as immigrants, and so they've been working among that immigrant population in the other country, but among that people group. But after much prayer, the Lord has now opened up the door to that nation once more. And this couple, um, again, who a lot of you would recognize, but at council, it was kind of funny. We could only look at them from behind. They actually brought them up on stage, and they were sitting in chairs with their backs to us to be interviewed because everything was going out on cameras on the Internet. And they only referred to them as Aquila and Priscilla. Um, but Aquila and Priscilla are going back to that Muslim Republic this year, along with another couple who, was, who were named Ruth and Boaz. And Ruth and Boaz have three little kids. So it's, it's really an exciting thing. So that's one country we're going back into. And if you come up to me afterwards, I'll tell you what it is. Okay, I just can't say it on, online. The Alliance is also entering a brand new country in northern Africa where we have never been before. Uh, this is a desert land that is almost 100% Muslim. It is almost entirely unreached by the gospel with only a handful of native believers. 
Uh, we have one couple on the ground in that country right now, and a few workers are going in this year to do survey work and to discover the best way to approach the people of this new nation. But let me turn that question around to you right now and maybe ask this as we kind of ease into our topic for this morning. How do you bring the gospel to a nation or to any group of people that is staunchly opposed to, to Christianity and, and pre-programmed, as it were, to resist the good news of Jesus? How do you do that? Or maybe even you can ask this question closer to home too, right? You can say, oh, look, how, how do you approach your neighbor? How do you approach your coworker? How do you approach your friend, maybe even a family member who is resistant for whatever reason to the gospel or to, to at least to the idea of Christianity or to church or to religion or, or whatever it might be? How do you talk to that person? What's the approach got to be? Back in my youth pastor days, um, our youth group um, in South Carolina, we needed money. Uh, youth groups always need money, um, but we needed money to go to the Life Conference back in 1995. And one of the men in our church was a farmer, and he was getting ready to plant crops in one of his fields. And so he offered us, as the youth group, a few hundred dollars if, if we would come out and clear his field for him, which was probably about five acres, now that I look back on it. And, I, and he wanted to go and seed it, but it had to be cleared out first. And let me tell you, this was hard work. That field was full of stumps and branches and, and some pretty good-sized rocks, and that youth group worked a lot harder that day than, than we thought we would. Uh, but we also learned something. Well, we probably knew it already, but we learned it by experience, that you can't sow your seed when your field is full of rocks. Nothing will grow. And as the great commission of Jesus, his command to tell us to go and make disciples in every nation in the world, as, as that commandment or the fulfillment of that commandment is really kind of reaching the home stretch. We're getting into the final phases of this now. But the people groups in this world that remain unreached by the gospel, they're the hard ones. They're the hardest ones. These are the places where the Alliance is now sending not just a few of our workers, we are now sending the bulk of our workers to places that are very, very difficult. They are predominantly Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or atheist. These are countries that are not open to traditional missionaries. And we can't even, when we talk in public settings about them, say which country this is or what the names of the people are. Basically, these fields are full of rocks. There are all sorts of things in these countries that, that form resistance to the gospel. So the question is, what can pry loose those rocks and prepare the people of these nations for receiving the good news that Jesus died for them? Excuse me. Let me look at some verses we looked at last week very briefly. We kind of almost skipped over them last week, but I want to read them again today. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. Matthew 22, 34. Again, this is uh, in the last week of Jesus' life. He's fielding some tough questions from some of his uh, opponents, really. And it says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Last week, we noted that, that this was, in fact, the greatest commandment in the whole Bible. It's repeated many times. In fact, it's usually called the great commandment. And, and last week, we were talking about, about ways to bring a, a kingdom of God flavor, ways to be kingdom people or to, in a sense, think about advancing the kingdom of God in our everyday lives, on the job, on Monday morning, on, on, you know, while, we're, while we're doing tasks around the house, while we're mowing the yard, while we're hanging out with our friends, whatever it might be. And, and what we talked about last week, if you think about it, was really the first part of this commandment. How do you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength while you're doing the everyday things of life? How do you make a kingdom difference as you're doing just those plain old things we normally think of as our, our secular lives? Well, this week, I really want to look at the second part of Jesus' great commandment here, the part that's found in verse 39. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, when you hear this commandment, there's almost a reflex to ask a certain question. When I say, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, almost everyone is going to say at some point along the line, okay, fine, who is my neighbor? Is it just the guy that lives next door to me? Probably not. And you would not be the first person to ask that question either, because one time when Jesus recited this commandment way back in Luke chapter 10, there was a guy there that asked him the same question. Okay, Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded to that by telling the, a parable that we know today is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm not going to have time here to tell you the whole story of the Good Samaritan, but the upshot of that story was this. Basically, your neighbor that you're supposed to love is whoever you come across who happens to be in need. Whoever you come across who happens to be in need. And that might be someone very different from you. It was in the parable. Or someone you would not typically think of hanging around with. Someone who's maybe not on the short list of people that you want to get to know. Maybe even someone that you would normally consider to be an opponent or even an enemy. And Christians can obey this commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves in a lot of different ways, right? Just in our in everyday lives. We, we, can, we can bring food to a neighbor who's sick or homebound. We can give financial help to people who are in financial need. We can spend time listening to people who are hurting. We can visit people in prison or in hospitals or in rest homes. We can work to alleviate poverty or inequality in our community. We can speak up for people who are oppressed or marginalized or forgotten or mistreated. There are a million different ways to love our neighbors, and, and often we can cross ethnic and social and economic barriers when we do this, and God calls us to do these very things. Now, last week we asked a question. We said, how do we advance the kingdom of God? Remember, that's our topic for really our whole year, is the kingdom of God. How do we, how do we advance the kingdom of God? How do we obey what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? How do we seek first God's kingdom, which is God's rule over God's people in God's place? What specifically does it mean to do kingdom work in my life? And we define that by appealing to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 where Jesus said, make disciples in every nation as he builds up his kingdom through us by building his church. And I, and I told you guys last week, that's kingdom work. That's the definition of kingdom work right there. And it sounded kind of restrictive, but I, 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 defi I defended that from Scripture. And you will note that by definition, these loving actions that we're talking about as we love our neighbors, they are not in and of themselves kingdom work. When we, when we love people in Jesus' name, when we serve people, when we meet their needs, when we make sacrifices for them, 
Jesus calls us to do this. It's the greatest commandment. When we do that, even on a larger scale, when we work to alleviate pain and suffering and poverty and hatred and inequality in this world, however we try to do that, it's important to do these things. But listen, when we do that, we are not building up the kingdom of God. That is not why we do it. We don't do it to build up the kingdom of God. The command to seek Christ's kingdom first is not a command to change the broken systems of the world. But the command to love our neighbors might very well lead us in the direction of changing some of the broken systems of this world. And as you can probably guess, loving our neighbors, both locally and around the world, happens to be a very effective way to pry the rocks out of the resistant soil in people's hearts and lives and clear the way for the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not the only way. And sometimes, you know what? God is God. And God can do things any way he wants to do things. And there are people that will come to Christ the first time they hear the gospel and nobody's been pouring a lot of love into them necessarily, but the gospel just comes in and does its work because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, right? That message comes to people's hearts and the Holy Spirit flips a switch and it's woo. That happens. There are other people that you will spend your whole life pouring love into and sacrificing for them and giving to them and, and doing all sorts of things to try to, to bring them to the point where you can share Christ and you will. And no matter how much love those people receive from you, they will not come to Christ. However, when you're looking for ways to clear the rocks out of the harvest field, there is nothing better than neighbor love. There is nothing better than reaching out and showing people the love of Jesus that you have received from Jesus and you turn around and show to them. And I'm just going to share, you, share some examples of this. And these are, this is maybe kind of a continuation of the report, but I want to just tell some stories, a couple of which I heard at council. The Christian and Missionary Alliance entered Cambodia way back in 1922. So a long time ago. And it was a very difficult place, a very resistant field. A risk, resistant to the gospel, as was its neighbor, French Indochina, which is now called Vietnam. Over 90% and over 95% of the population of Cambodia is Buddhist. It was very slow going. That was the official religion of the country for many, many years. And so Cambodia was a tough place to bring the gospel. But then came the 1970s. Massive carpet bombings of Cambodia during the Vietnam War destabilized the government and eventually led to the rise of the group known as the Khmer Rouge, a communist regime, as some of you will remember, was led by a brutal dictator by the name of Pol Pot. That regime executed about two million Cambodians and drove millions and millions of others out of their homes and many even out of the country. When the Khmer Rouge finally fell from power all the way, which was, wasn't until 1993, what was left was a devastated people rampant poverty and disease, an enormous number of orphans and displaced people, also an exploding drug problem, a rise in human trafficking, a feeling of overall hopelessness and a loss of spiritual cohesion as the Khmer Rouge had destroyed about 95% of the nation's Buddhist temples during its time in power. But there was also a small Christian presence in Cambodia, and in this case, a lot of them were Alliance Christians. And these people got to work loving their neighbors. They provided food and shelter. They helped refugees. They opened addiction recovery centers, one of which is now run by a former drug dealer who came to Christ. 
They provided prenatal education for new moms. They built clinics and hospitals, including in the city of Poipet, which previously had a population of 100,000 people, but not a single hospital or ambulance in the city. Now, as we approach the 100th anniversary of Alliance work in Cambodia next year, after years of, of lovingly pulling these rocks out of the field, it is now harvest time for the gospel in what is possibly the fastest growing Alliance church in the world. Hundreds and hundreds are coming to Christ. New churches are being opened. New leaders are being trained. And in fact, though, though Christianity is still a very small minority in Cambodia, relatively speaking, a Cambodian Alliance pastor who recently moved back to Cambodia from New York has now been appointed the official advisor for Christianity to the Cambodian prime minister. The kingdom of God is on the move in Cambodia. All right, one more quick story that I'm going to introduce to you, a special guest who's here this morning. Uh, I was sitting on a bench on a walkway in the Opera Land Hotel during the first day of council, and I heard someone yell my name from about 20 feet away, and I'm like, hey, don't, you know, well, who's that? Turned out to be Betty Arnold. Uh, Betty and her husband John have been serving with the Alliance in Burkina Faso for many, many years. Um, a lot of you know them. They've been at FAC here multiple times. In fact, John is Bev Arnold's nephew. And we worked with John and Betty on both of our church's mission trips to Burkina Faso several years ago, first back in 2012, and then when some guys went to, to, to drill wells a couple years later. Uh, John himself showed up, and he, he joined us on the bench there, and I asked them uh, if they were still drilling wells in Burkina to bring water to these villages. And it turns out that John and Betty technically retired this year. Um, in fact, I think they were there for, partly for the retirement uh, luncheon they were having that day. But John is still helping to coordinate well drilling teams in Burkina Faso. He's just doing it remotely from here in Georgia. And he visits Burkina several times a year. What he said was this. He said, although they still drill wells in, in some of these new villages uh, to get water to these people, most of what they do now is repairing existing wells because the, the galvanized steel is finally starting to rust through after about 40 or 50 years on some of these old wells, not the ones we dug, but some other wells. And these villages where the wells are, are rusting through are almost all majority Muslim villages, and they are losing their access to fresh water. But it's quicker and about seven times cheaper to replace the pipes in an old well than it is to drill a new one, and so they can reach a lot more villages that way. And John and Betty told me that the church in Burkina Faso is growing very rapidly, even in these predominantly Muslim villages. Because you see, as, as Muslim extremists from the north press down into the southern and western parts of Africa, Burkina Faso is right on the dividing line right now. And when the terrorists come to these villages to wreak havoc and, and to take over, the terrorists are all Muslims. Meanwhile, the people that are coming to repair the wells in the villages are all Christians. And this is speaking volumes to the people of Burkina as this young church there keeps sharing the gospel with their neighbors and the kingdom of God is growing very fast in Burkina Faso largely because Christians are loving their Muslim neighbors with no strings attached. I want to introduce you now to our special guest for this morning just for a brief word of testimony. Uh, Christy Stauffer is here today. Uh, Christy started attending First Alliance Church when she was about 13 years old, I think, and she has been our missionary to the city of Amsterdam in the Netherlands for several years now. Uh, Christy works with a team that ministers in the red light district, which is the center of the city's legal prostitution industry, and obviously a very dark place in a country that used to be primarily Christian a long, long time ago, but is now majority Muslim atheists, uh, not Muslim, non-religious or atheist, I'm sorry, um, 
There are some Muslim there, Muslims there too, for sure. Um, but only about 4% Bible-believing Christians in the Netherlands. So Christy, as you work among the people of that city, I'm going to give you Jesse's mic here. Make sure it's hot for you. It is. Okay. And uh, our, what are some of the things that, that your team is doing maybe to just sort of obey Jesus' commandment to, to love your neighbors? And is that opening any doors for the gospel in the Netherlands? Um, now we are planted as a mission space in the middle of the city of Amsterdam, and uh, our core desire is to know God and make Him known. We have a bunch of students that come to our base eager to dive into what it means to know God and allow them to bring deep transformation to their hearts, and eager to take that heart transforming love out onto the streets of our city and into the nations beyond. Um, as Paul said, I live and do a majority of the ministry in the Red Light District, which is smack dab in the city, city center. Uh, when I moved into this district last year, I felt the Lord give me the scripture to hold on to, to proclaim and pray over the people surrounding me as soon as I step out of my front door. The Lord says in Isaiah 45, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. On my familiar trek to the store through the alleys, I remember this. As I pass by the windows of shop owners, my neighbors, I pray that God will have these treasures in darkness. Mm -hmm. As I walk by the windows, I see the ladies standing behind the glass and groups of men wandering through. I remember the words of Isaiah 61, that through and by Jesus we are anointed to bring good news to the poor and sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to perform liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. And to be honest, I look around and can see that there's so many prison doors to still be unlocked, so many hearts to still be softened. Uh, but God is faithful, and His eyes are on these men and women in this city. Through mm. people on our team and many other groups of organizations, we go out to these ladies and men in the district. Our team takes tea and coffee and goes to their windows offering a free drink, a gift instead of coming to take. Countless conversations and prayers have happened at and in those windows as they take the free gift of love that has freed us to share with these women and men. During COVID, when the windows were closed for most of the, the year, some of the women and men came to our building for a school to learn practical life skills to help with getting other jobs. During this time, a few of the women opened their hearts to the love of Jesus and started down a new path of freedom. Hmm. Our team journeying with them, these treasures coming from the darkness. Hmm. I'm often in the prayer room which is our building right next door to where these ladies and men have been coming to learn. We pray for them, we intercede for our neighborhood and the souls of the people around us. But ultimately, we care because Jesus is worthy of worship. He is the most worthy one. And in the midst of the neighborhood where so many other things are blending worship, lust, selfishness, pride, we desire to release a different fragrance. A fragrance of pure worship and enthrone Jesus with our praises. We are compelled to sing his goodness and love in that place. And we will continue to do so as people have done in that place for decades before us. And have seen God transform so many hearts with his love, including our own. <laughs> so thank you all. So also just thank you for your generosity and for praying into what we're doing in Amsterdam and giving and supporting. It means so much to have your support. Thank you, Christy. And how long are you in town for? Tomorrow. Okay, so it's a matter of hours, and she'll be going back. And that is um, 
Christy, Christy is not an alliance missionary in the sense of being sent through the Christian Missionary Alliance, but she is an alliance missionary because she's part of First Alliance Church, and she's a First Alliance missionary, and, and that is our footprint in Amsterdam um, in, in the Netherlands, and it's very exciting what God is, is doing in that city. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, we just have a few minutes left, but I, I want to I just sort of tie some things together for you very briefly by looking at a passage from God's Word. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read the verses in a couple minutes, but, but the question is this. We know that Jesus calls us to love. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, our neighbors around the world, our neighbors across the street. We're also supposed to share Jesus with them, and we've decided that's, that's kingdom work. We're trying to, to grow the kingdom of God by bringing the gospel of Jesus to people so they can come to know him as well. So if we're supposed to love them and we're supposed to talk to, Jesus, talk to them about Jesus, does that mean that we love them in order to talk to them about Jesus? Is that why we love them? Do we love them just so we get an opportunity to share the gospel with them? Now you can take this question further and look at more of the implications of it, and, and today some professing Christians are doing that, and you will hear them say things like this. Look, why do we always need to be converting people? Isn't it enough just that we love them because we love them? I mean, isn't that what Jesus really called us to do? Isn't that the great commandment? Isn't that what kingdom work really is, just love? I mean, why do we have to, to always be trying to get them to become what we are? People find that idea offensive. It's intolerant, and some people even call it ethnocentric. Is it really loving just to get people to change their religion and believe like we do? Can't we just love them? That's a question that you're going to hear from more and more people and you're going to hear it from more and more people in the church. So how do you answer it? How do you answer, is, is it true that we have ulterior motives, that, that we're just maybe being kind of manipulative? Does our, because we want to share Jesus with people, does that mean that our love for our neighbors has some kind of strings attached? The answer is no. No. We love people even if they never come to Christ. We love them because they are our neighbors and God has put a love for them in our hearts. That's why we love them. Now, the next question you could ask then, okay, all right, we just love them. So does that mean that, that we're satisfied if we just get to love them but we never really get to share the gospel with them, the good news of Jesus? Is that enough? And ultimately, the answer to that question is also no. It's not enough. And here's why. Let's read from 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, really through verse 21. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 14 says that the love of Christ controls us, or in some of your versions it'll say compels us. What love is Paul talking about, and what is it compelling us to do? Well, Paul goes on and he says, well, here's why. We reason this way. God's love controls us because if we reason that if one died for all, then that means all died. Paul is saying that every human being you ever meet is a potential believer in Jesus, and looking at verse 17, a potential new creation in Christ because Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to save them. And you can't talk about the death of Christ. It's impossible to talk about the death of Christ without talking about God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God commends his love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love of Christ that controls us is Jesus' love for us, which drove Him to die for us on Calvary, and also is Jesus' love for other people. It's the same love. People that we no longer view, verse 16, according to the common way of, of looking at people and assessing them by their looks or their intelligence or their personality or their friendliness. Instead, we view them as having an awful lot in common with us. And if Jesus loved us enough to die for us, then that means that He loved them enough to die for them. Think about this for a minute. Just meditate on this for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means God has reached out to you with his love on Calvary's cross when Jesus died for you and saved you from sin and death and hell and given you a whole new life that's actually eternal life. So why did he set his love on you like that? What was it about you that caused him to do that for you? Was it the good works that you've done? Well, the Bible's very clear it's not that. Was it your kindness? Was it your humility? Was it your availability? Was it your great potential to be a really awesome Christian? Did God look at you and say, oh man, that that would be a great Christian. I'm going to save that one. No, it was none of these things. Well, what was it then? Was it your faith? No. God directed his saving love toward you long before you ever believed in him. In fact, Ephesians said he did it before you were ever created. Well, then what's left? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing but the fact of God's love. Yes, God has reasons for everything he does, but whatever the reason was that he chose to save me, I can tell you it had absolutely nothing to do with any good quality or good actions or good attitudes on my part. He just loved me. And so he saved me. I have no further explanation. And neither do you. And that means there is nothing at all that distinguishes me from my unbelieving neighbor when it comes to being worthy of God's saving love. He and I are 100% in the same boat. And as I meditate on God's love for me in Christ, and by extension, God's love for my neighbor, what I really need to pray for is that God will give me the same love that he has for my neighbor. 
that as the Holy Spirit works on my, my often callous heart, that God's love for me will become God's love through me, and that love will compel me to do what? Well, according to the passage, it will compel me to do what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, that love for my neighbor will compel me to share Christ with him. Because at the end of the day, if I really love him enough to want what's best for him, and that's, by the way, a pretty good definition of love, then sharing the message of the gospel with him is the most loving thing that I could ever do. So when somebody says, well, why can't we just love them and not try to convert them? That's a false dichotomy. It is true that the Apostle John tells us, look, if any of you has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Absolutely. We meet those needs. But the love that moves us to meet those material needs, to share a meal, to give someone a ride to the hospital, to watch someone's kids, to share our finances, to drill a well in Africa, to open up a camel farm in Atlanta, to teach people English in Central Asia, to build a hospital in Cambodia. That's the same love that compels us to share the words of life and to meet the greatest need of all, which is new life in Christ. Because that's what kingdom love does.